This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 33, numbers chapters 4 through 7. Chapter 4 picks up where chapter 3 left off, with additional headcounts, this time for the various clans within the tribe of Levi, and the specifics of their role as God's roadies, be it packing up the various implements and vessels or breaking down the sets for the next gig. Chapter 5, still dealing with matters priestly, quickly recaps some of the highlights from Leviticus about what to do with one with Sarat, or an individual made Tameh by a flow, or through contact with a corpse, or faith breakers who must make restitution, plus a 20% faith-breaking surcharge. But then we're introduced to a new matter altogether, Sota. And though the term Sota appears only in the Mishnah, and later in the Talmud, it is based on verse 12's if she has strayed, which in Hebrew is rendered sata, and refers to a wife whose husband suspects she's been with another man, and thus she must undergo a trial by ordeal. There are ways of telling whether she is a witch. Tell me, what do you do with witches? What do you burn apart from witches? More witches! Wood! So, why do witches burn? Because they're made of wood. Good! <laughs> so, how do we tell whether she is made of wood? Build a bridge out of her! Ah, but can you not also make bridges out of stone? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, does a wood sink in water? No, 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 it floats. It floats over into the pond. <laughs> what also floats in water? Bread. Apples. Uh, very small rocks. Cider. A great gravy. Cherries. Mud. A churches. Churches. Lead. Lead. A duck. <laughs> exactly. So, logically, she weighs the same as a duck. She's made of wood. And therefore... A witch! A The trial doesn't involve being weighed or tossed in the river, but drinking the water of bitterness, which consists of holy water in an earthenware vessel, some dirt from the floor of the dwelling, and some of the barley meal her husband brought as a grain gift of jealousy. There's also the unloosening of hair, laying of hands, and the swearing of an oath, whereby the woman avers that she did not stray from her husband, and did not make herself tame with another man's emission. But if she did, then her thighs will fall and her belly will flood. The woman then says, Amen, Amen, and then the Kohen writes out all the curses in a document and blots them in the concoction before the woman drinks it down. And then we wait. If her thighs fall and her belly floods, then the woman, quote, shall become an object of curse among her kinfolk, end quote. But if nothing happens, then the woman is not a witch. I mean, she's not an adulterer, and, and we're good. Though Judaism does not have an ascetic tradition, chapter 6 introduces us to the Nazarite, or Nazir, which, uh, as the text points out, could be a man or a woman who forswears grapes, haircuts, and contact with corpses, even those of his or her immediate family. 
The oath of being a Nazir could be permanent or for a limited time, but in the case where the Nazir comes into contact with a corpse, apparently, I guess, a common occurrence, then he or she must reboot the vow, shaving her head and bringing offerings to the Kohen. When the period of the vow is complete, the Nazir returns to the dwelling with three offerings, and along with her hair, puts it all in the fire. After that, number says, the Nazir can drink wine. Chapter 6 concludes with the priestly blessing. May the Lord protect and defend you. May he always shield you from shame. May you come to be in Israel a shining name. Chapter 7 is the third longest chapter in the Tanakh, and it's about the donations given to the dwelling each day from each tribe in the hands of each Nasi, more specifically what they gave, how many gold ladles of incense or silver dishes or hairy goats or oxen or lambs, etc., 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 the chapter concludes with verse 89, which recounts that Moshe would come into the tent of appointment to speak with God, and he would hear, quote, the voice continually speaking to him from above the purgation cover that is atop the coffer of testimony from between the two winged sphinxes, and he would speak to him, end quote. So there's a lot to talk about in this week. Let's get to it. Many would say that any interaction with the legal system is trying enough. This week's portion introduces a concept that is downright strange to us late capitalist postmoderns. Have you been accused of a crime? Worried that you don't have an aggressive and experienced law firm on your side in order to protect yourself and your family? Well, don't worry any longer. Now there's no need to suffer through a long trial, wishy-washy juries, capricious judges, or all those bloated legal fees when your guilt or innocence can be determined quickly and efficiently by subjecting you to an unpleasant and often dangerous experience. All you need to do is choose who by fire, who by water, or who by ingestion. It's up to you, and within minutes, you'll have your answer and you can get on with your life. Trial by ordeal. Call us today. George Mason University economist Peter Leeson argued in a paper entitled simply Ordeals that by leveraging a medieval superstition called Judicium Dei, or Judgments of God, trials by ordeals accurately assigned accused criminals' guilt and innocence. And the way he demonstrates this is by sort of playing out a scenario using a hypothetical case of a missing animal. So you have a, a medieval farmer, he's well accepted and well respected in his community. He accuses Frithagar, who is less accepted and less respected. He says Frithagar stole his sheep. Frithagar denies it, uh, but there are no witnesses, and the accuser is a prominent member of the community. So if you're the judge, well, what do you do? He, you, know, you don't think that the uh, accuser would make up the charge against Frithagar, so you order Frithagar to undergo the hot water ordeal. Now, if Frithagar is a true believer, he will survive the ordeal unharmed. But, Leeson considers, what if Frithogar is a skeptic? Frithogar knows in his heart that he's guilty, but nobody else knows. And if he concedes to the ordeal, he expects to burn his arm. And on top of that, he'll be exposed as a thief and he'll suffer the punishment for theft. Frithogar's 
other option is to decline the ordeal. What he can do is he can just confess the crime, or he can settle out of court with his accuser. In both cases, that is, in confessing or in paying out his accuser, he is punished, but, but the punishment is less severe than the hefty fine for theft. But by refusing the ordeal, uh, Frithogar suffers less punishment than if he undergoes it. You know, he saves his arm, right? And etc., etc. So if he's truly guilty, Frithogar will choose to decline the ordeal. But what if Frithogar is innocent? What if the sheep just wandered off or was eaten by a mountain lion? Frithogar knows he didn't steal it, but nobody else knows. So in this case, if Frithogar undergoes the ordeal, he expects to deliver his arm from the boiling water unharmed, and in doing so, everyone will know that he's innocent. He'll also avoid other, any other punishment. Uh, and, but if he declines the ordeal and he confesses or settles instead, he suffers a punishment for a crime he didn't commit. So if he's innocent... Frithogar will choose to undergo the ordeal. And in the end, as Leeson concludes, the ordeal leverages Frithogar's superstition, his objectively false belief that ordeals are judicium dei to incentivize him to reveal his criminal status to the legal system. But there are two caveats to Leeson's assertion. First, uh, in the sorting equilibrium just described, guilty persons would never undergo ordeals, only innocent ones would. More importantly, ordeals they work only if you, they don't actually injure the person who undergoes them. They have to exonerate those that, that they don't harm. But how is that possible? This is where the administering priest comes in. So the priest who's watching all this happen, he, he observes whether the defendant is willing to undergo the ordeal. And then he uh, can decide, I guess, if the defendant is innocent. And if, if that's the case, he can then fix the ordeal to find the correct result. So if Frithogar chooses to undergo his ordeal, the ordeal administering priest can lower the water's temperature so it doesn't boil him. But what if the priest is not so perceptive or in the prominent farmer's pocket? Hmm. Frithogar plunges his arm into the cauldron and he expects to be unharmed and his expectation is fulfilled, not by God, but by the newly informed priest. But where his argument kind of falls apart is the calculation and the rational choice before the accused. Well, let's take a different case. Let's take the case of our Sota in chapter 5. Reuven suspects his wife Shimona of cheating on him. He doesn't know with whom. There are no witnesses. Without divine intervention, a judge is left with two options. The judge could ask the accused woman if she's guilty, or he could threaten the woman with torture if she doesn't tell the truth. And on both cases, the results produced would not be accurate. If simply asked, did you do it, you have all the reason in the world to say no. And if you're threatened with torture, you have all the reason in the world to say yes. And besides, in the Torah, judges cannot threaten defendants with torture to extract testimony. Or a get from a recalcitrant husband. Someday, and that day may never come, I'll call upon you to do a service for me. But uh, until that day, accept this justice as a gift on my daughter's wedding day. However... As Leeson argued, for those who bought into the notion of judicium dei, as we assume the participants of Numbers 5 do, trial by ordeal could yield generally correct outcomes. It does this, according to Leeson, by satisfying the single crossing condition. If she's innocent, the suspected wife would find it cheaper to undergo the ordeal than if she's guilty. A guilty woman would anticipate the ordeal to find her guilty. An innocent woman would expect the reverse except that guilt in this matter is punishable by death, 
so the ordeal might over-incentivize her not to reveal her criminal status to the legal system. In other words, it could either be death by lapidation or death by ingestion. Your pick. As we consider this vexing dilemma, I recall the Unatana Tokif prayer from the High Holy Days, and especially Leonard Cohen's Who by Fire, who makes prominent the theme of high ordeal and common trial in the prayer. Aside, this business of Judicium Dei begs a bigger, more vexing question. Is this how we conduct justice? Is trial by ordeal, or for that matter, punishing the guilty with public shaming or flogging just? Now, before we turn our noses up again, let's consider the following 2011 proposition as pitched by former cop and John Jay College of Criminal Justice Sociologist Peter Moskos. Given the choice between five years in prison and ten brutal lashes, which would you choose? Yes, flogging is a severe and even brutal form of punishment. Under the lash, skin is literally ripped from the body, but prison means losing a part of your life and everything you care for. Compared to this, flogging is just a few very painful strokes on the behind, and it's over in a few minutes. If you had the choice, if you were given the option of staying out of jail, wouldn't you choose to be flogged and released? Well, wouldn't you? Moscos is not a flogging partisan, but a vociferous critic of the United States prison industrial complex. Moscos argues that prison means losing a part of your life and everything you care for. It means being an extra in season six of Oz, the one that gets... <laughs> It means a system in the U.S. that already locks up more people per 100,000 citizens than any other country on Earth, including one in every 11 African Americans who are under some form of correctional control, be it prison, probation, or parole. It means expanding that system into the private sector on the claims that people can be locked up for less money, which is false, which also encourages private prison corporations to lobby for get-tough laws to keep their prisons full. As the saying goes, we build prisons for people we're afraid of, and fill them with people we're mad at. And then there's the matter of recidivism. Compared with this, flogging is just a few very painful strokes on the backside, and it's over in a few minutes. But for some folks, especially those who have been personally affected by crime, having a convicted criminal only suffer a few minutes of pain doesn't seem to be enough. Which is kind of messed up, but also highlights an important social function of the justice system. Retribution. We want the criminal to pay for her crimes and to suffer. 
but rather than succumb to our basis instincts and tear the offender limb from limb ourselves, we have a judge and a court in careful consideration before condemning the lawbreaker to whichever punishment is deemed appropriate. So something which could have been a bloody and messy riot is now a proper and clean and neat procedure. Flogging also highlights another important social function of the justice system, the power of the state and how it holds the monopoly on the exercise of that power. I mean, if I see someone doing an illegal U-turn, I can't pull them over shouting, and give them a ticket or a quick lash. That would get me into trouble with the authorities because I would be horning in on the state's gig as punisher, finer of fines, or lasher of lashes. So, seeing a representative of the state take a whip in hand and really lay into a citizen would lay bare the power of the state and be a real teachable moment for everybody else. Don't fuck with me, fellas! This ain't my first time which I think gets to the heart of the problem I have with SOTA and flogging and the judicial system, although it tries its best to mete out fair verdicts and do the right thing, blah, 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 blah. It, it always just falls way short. So let's start with the last point first. If legal systems were not subject to all the forces and urges that twist and pervert and bias, then it wouldn't be run by humans, which means that since it is run by humans, we need to keep a watchful eye on it. And if possible, check it and balance it, and most importantly, not vest it with too much power to, say, inflict physical punishment or torture people. Which is why there are a lot of mitzvot that urge judges to be fair and just, etc., etc. But even with all those mitzvot, we should cast a jaundiced eye on judges and the judicial system. Especially since we know it is applied, occasionally, unfairly. Remember these words. If it doesn't fit... You must acquit. So if we go back to that hypothetical about flogging, one has to ask, well, how did you end up at that moment of choice? How did you enter into the criminal justice system? We know that many people find themselves embroiled in the criminal justice system where other folks who offend similarly would find themselves sent home with a stern talking to. And we also know that some folks who find themselves in the business end of a judge's gavel get different sentencing options, which begs the question that Moscus does not address. Why do you only have two choices at sentencing? If you're a non-violent offender, someone society isn't necessarily that scared of, someone that society doesn't really need to have locked up, like, I don't know, Bernie Madoff, and you're being offered the flogging option, couldn't you also be offered diversion, probation, counseling, or community service? Or how about a steep fine and or restitution? If you're looking for a way to keep me out of the highly problematic prison system, surely you can come up with other options besides flogging. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. And finally, in the case of Sota, or tangentially in the case of Frithagar, why is the burden of proof on the accused? If the Sota's husband is suspicious and jealous of his wife, then he has two options. A. Get over it. Or B. Get evidence. Because a courtroom is no place to hash out arguments based on ignorance, where the husband and the court regard the wife as an adulterer because it has not yet been proven that she isn't. Which, of course, excludes a third option which is that there is insufficient information to prove anything. Which is why, I guess, we resort to trial by ordeal, which, like the argument from ignorance, shifts the burden of proof and blame to the accused. Which is total bullshit, I should add. 
Now, I suppose one could employ that old saw about absence of evidence not being evidence of absence. However, fortunately for marital relations and married people, it seems like Sota, like the Ben Sorer More, the stubborn and rebellious son, was discussed more than it was practiced. At least that's what Rachel Bialy wrote in Women and Jewish Law way back in the previous century in 1984. Which, I guess, could be argued is a case of absence of evidence being evidence of absence. So, yeah. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or quement at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash TanakhCast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or quement at the iTunes store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. You're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 34 on the Book of Numbers, chapters 8 through 11. Y'all come back now. Here. Yeah.